Well, good morning to all of you. Um, I have been sharing different sermons um, from the um, patriarchs, and um, and so this morning we're going to be going back to the life of Abraham and um, talk about um, is um, almost sacrificing Isaac. So um, I'm going to start off with the children's um, little class. of children want to come forward? you all are here this morning. Um, I'm glad some older people are here too, or you wouldn't be here, right? Not, how many of you all drive? Weston does. Okay. Kyle does. Very good. Sophie does. Wow. <laughs> so the problem isn't that you can't drive. It's that um, the state of Virginia doesn't recognize that you can drive, right? Um, not sure. It would be probably difficult to reach the gas pedal for some of y'all. So I've been thinking about things that are valuable because we're going to be talking about sacrifice this morning. So does anybody know what a sacrifice is? Yes, Grayson. It's like That's right. So they'd kill it first and then they would burn it. And that was a sacrifice. So, um, so have you all ever sacrificed something? Not like that, right? Um, but sometimes we're called to give up things that we like very much. So um, I was thinking about what the most valuable things in my life are. So um, do you all have anything that you own that's really valuable? Yeah, Weston does. Yeah. Um, so I think maybe the thing that I that I that I have is, that's really valuable is I have I have a medical school diploma, so it's actually hanging up in my office. And if I didn't have that, I couldn't see patients. Well, I guess I could, but I, I'd go to jail after a while once I figured out I hadn't graduated from medical school. Sometimes people try to do that. Did you know that? There's people who pretend to be doctors and they see patients, and then eventually catches up to them because they don't know all the things. But it's easier on Facebook, maybe. Um, so when I was a boy, I also collected baseball cards. Have you all ever seen baseball cards? Yeah. Weston's got a couple. So, so I thought that, um, by the time I was the age I am now, and I won't tell you all how old I am now, but if you look on the church calendar, you can figure it out. I thought by the time I was this old, I would be a multimillionaire because of all the baseball cards I had. And I've actually saved a lot of these baseball cards. Some some boys, their uh, mother throws them away eventually, but but I kept mine. But they're not worth anything. That's the problem. So anyway, they're just pieces of cardboard. Um, but as I was thinking about, what do you think the thing that I thought of that was most valuable for me was? Yes, Grayson. My life. Okay, well that's pretty valuable. But I thought of something else. Yes, Weston. Uh, my wife, yeah, my wife would be pretty valuable to me too. Um, so I brought a picture of it here. So it's probably my truck, right? So do you know who this is? You know those people? Who are those people? Yes, Grayson. Those are my family. That's right. My wife isn't actually on there, although I, I could have drawn her in maybe. 
so that's a, that's a picture of my family. And we're talking today about Abraham offering Isaac. And how is Isaac related to Abraham? Yes, Sophie. Yeah, Isaac was his son. So, so he was a special promised son that, that he had waited for ages and ages. And then um, God gave him Isaac. And then he heard a voice that he knew was the voice of God. And that voice told him, go and offer your son. Um, so there's one important thing for something to be a sacrifice. So a sacrifice is us giving something to God. Okay. And for it to be a sacrifice, what has to be true of it? This is one of those questions you have to read my mind. Do, can any of you all read my mind? Yeah, so if you can't. Um, so the thing that has to be true for something to be a sacrifice is it has to be valuable to us. So, Sophie, if you gave away Grayson's favorite toy, would that be a sacrifice? Well, it would be for Grayson, right? But it wouldn't be for you. Um, and sometimes we think, you know, I've given something away that's really valuable. So if you gave away your dad's truck, that would be <laughs> that would be a sacrifice for him, but it wouldn't be for you. Um, I don't think you could do that either. Um, so for something to be a real sacrifice, it has to be valuable to me. And then I can give it to God, okay? And it doesn't mean necessarily that I have to kill it, okay? So, But it doesn't mean that I'm giving it up so that God can use it. Um, and it's important that there's something even more important than sacrifice to God. Do you know what that is? Yes, Grayson. Love. Love is more important. Um, but there's a verse in First Samuel. Um, so Samuel came, and um, do you all remember how King Saul was supposed to kill all these um people and and sheep and stuff like that and he saved some of them and samuel came up and he said to king saul he said saul why have you kept these things and saul said well the people made me and anyway i thought they would make great sacrifices to god and what did samuel say in response to that samuel said has the lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. And so God would rather have us obey him than to give a million dollars to people who are in need. Okay? So you all can go back to your parents now. So I thought I would begin the sermon this morning um, with a parable. So this is called the parable of the priceless gem. Um, I like writing parables now and then. They're, I don't know, just an interesting thing. I have something I would show thee. The elderly jeweler bowed his head towards his youthful visitor. What is it, Rabbit Shock? The young man standing in the shop asked his elder, Daniel, thou must come with me. And see, for it is not a thing which words can describe, not though one would fill a thousand books from cover to cover, Rabbit Shock said, and then pointed to a door, to a door at the rear of his shop. Follow me, he said. The door led to another door, and yet another, before the jeweler rummaged in the pocket of his coat and produced a key. Quickly, he opened the door and motioned for the youth to go before him into the room. Finally, standing before a safe, he opened the door and brought forth a case, which he set on the table before him. 
Behold, he said, and opening the case, allowed the light from the lamp that he carried to shine full into it. There on the dark velvet lining of the case was revealed a magnificent jewel. From one angle, it appeared to be a diamond, while from another, it seemed to be an amethyst. It seemed to glow with a radiance shining from inside it. The young man was silent for a long time. Reb, Reb Itchok, he said, this is the most beautiful gem I've ever seen. It does not fit with the description of any jewels I've ever heard of. Thus speakest correctly, the old man said. This gem is one of a kind. Why do you not have it on display? Where did you obtain it? It must have cost you a fortune, the young man said. What price do you have set on it? Itchok looked at the jewel again. It is priceless, he said. A treasure carried by an armada could not purchase this gem from me. Surely that is just hyperbole, the youth said. Everything has a price. Not so, spoke the jeweler. This jewel has no price. That is partly true because it is unique, but even more so because it isn't mine. What do you mean it isn't yours? Daniel looked at the jewel with wonder in his eyes. This jewel was given to me many years ago, the jeweler said. When it was given to me, I promised the man who gave it to me that I would never sell this stone. It was to remain in my possession, but one day I would receive a message to give the stone away. On that day, I was to yield the gem wholeheartedly. This I promised. So it was that the stone was given into my keeping, and I have held it these 18 years, but tomorrow it goes out into the world. I have received a message from the man who entrusted this jewel to me, and I am to send the jewel for the messenger who comes for it. Does this not break your heart? Daniel asked in wonder. It does break my heart, Rebichok said. It also fills me with joy. For he has promised me that only on sending this gem out into the world can it do the good it was intended to do. With that, the ancient jeweler shut the box regretfully and smiled. This is what the gem was intended for, he said. I could treasure this gem until I close my eyes for the last time and bask in its glow but I would far rather see it serve a greater purpose. For my son, is it not this that the story of Abraham and Isaac signifies? So Abraham offers Isaac. Um, I think just as kind of a way of introduction, we need to remember that Abraham lived in a culture which offered children as sacrifices. So, you know, the question that the people in ancient days asked themselves was how could they get the gods to do what they wanted them to do? And the thing was that you could give up valuable things to the gods, um, animals, things like that, um, but they could give up their own children. Second Kings 3 verse 27 um, talks about how a Moabite king, um, when his capital city was threatened, went onto the city wall and in sight of everybody offered his own son. And it so shocked the Israelites that were attacking the city that they went away disgusted. Deuteronomy 12, verse 30 and 31 says, Take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abomination to the Lord, which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters 
in the fire to their gods. And so this is the Old Testament law. This follows the time of Abraham by hundreds of years, and yet it was clear that the Jewish people understood they were not to worship God in this way. They were not to do these kinds of things. And so we come here in Genesis chapter 22, and that's what we're going to be reading from if you want to turn to that, to a good time in Abraham's life. He's had peace for a while. He's comfortable with the people around him. He's not heard from God for a while, but he's got enough, and he's ready to live out the remainder of his days in peace. And then God's voice came to him and asked something very hard. So we're going to read Genesis 22, verses 1 through 19. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place far off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went on together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and you have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose together, rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. So the story begins with God calling Abraham. And unlike the previous times when 
God had called, spoken to Abraham. Here we find God asking Abraham to do something. And the passage specifically tells us that this is a test. Abraham was having his faith tested. Was it strong enough to obey God even when the outcome was not clear? And Abraham was asking, having his love tested as well, wasn't he? So the question really was, who did Abraham love most? Did he love Isaac, his son, his only son whom he loved God? It reminds me a little bit of John chapter 21, when after Peter had denied Jesus three times, Jesus came to him and asked him three times, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And I think God comes to each one of us and he asks us the same question. Do you love me more than this thing? And that thing that he's asking us is different for each one of us. God wanted to know if Abraham loved him best of all and whether Isaac had somehow become an idol for him. So the words that God uses to describe his command here express an understanding that God had of Abraham. He identified Isaac in three ways. So when something is repeated three times, it is important, okay? That this is really a key when we read the Hebrew Bible. And so God says about Isaac, your son, your only son, the one whom you love, he understood Abraham and his relationship with Isaac. And there was no question as to what God was asking of Abraham here. Does this description remind you of John 3.16? Because it should. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we see that, don't we? The only begotten son, just as Isaac was not Abraham's only son, but the son that was blessed. And we don't know what Abraham thought. You know, it's, Abraham is very quiet in this story, isn't he? He says almost nothing. We just see him suffering in silence through the story. He's doing what God is asking him, and yet he's so filled with emotion that he cannot even tell his son where they're going or what they're going to do. Abraham took the preparations on himself. He was a man with many servants, and yet we see him going out there, saddling the donkey, splitting the wood himself, hoping, hoping, hoping that at some point along this way that he's going to hear another voice telling him, okay, Abraham, I see your spirit. I see your love for me, and I am going to take this burden off of you. And so Abraham headed for Mount Moriah. He started off early in the morning. We know that Abraham didn't put things off. He just, um, back in the story of circumcision, he got up early in the morning and went at it, and here he gets up early in the morning, and he starts off with Isaac and two servants. And we see that they journeyed three days, and this is significant too, isn't it? The number three is um, the, the Hebrew word for it is shalosh, and it appears 460 times, 67 times in the Bible. I, I looked that up, so I don't 
it could be wrong, but it's a lot of times. The only number that appears more times in the Bible is the number seven. Um, and they saw this number as a number of new life and completeness. So God called Samuel three times. Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish. And, of course, Jesus was in the tomb three days before his resurrection. Seems like this trip was a very silent one. So three days, what did they talk about? Well, not much. Abraham is so distressed. He cannot think of anything. He can't make small talk. He can't talk about the weather. Of course, weather in Canaan is pretty same-ish every day. But as he was thinking about it, he came to the conclusion of what he knew God was going to do. And we know this from one simple word, right? The word we. So when he tells the servants, Isaac and I are going to go away over there and offer sacrifice, and we will return to you. And Abraham knew his commitment. He knew he was going to offer Isaac, and he thought the only way this can be true is if God performs a resurrection. But he's God. He can do it. I trust him. And so I will do what he's asked me to do. So the next speech we have is Isaac asking the question that probably all of us would have asked long ago. We have wood. We have fire. Where is the animal? And here we see another glimmer of faith. I like the way the King James Version says it. He says, my son, God, will provide himself a sacrifice. Because he's the only one who can take our place. He's the only one who can lay himself down on the altar and say, I will take your place. You don't deserve it. But I will give my son for you. And so we see Isaac carrying the wood for his sacrifice up the mountain with his father beside him. And stone by stone, Abraham builds an altar, and Isaac does not run away. And he lays himself down on the altar and allows himself to be bound. And then, as Abraham was in the very act of slaying his son, he heard a voice again. And the voice told him, do not slay your son. There is a substitute And then we find Abraham calling this place Jehovah-Jireh. You've heard Jehovah-Jireh. It means the Lord will provide. And God told Abraham that now God knew for certain that Abraham feared him. And because of this, he would be not only with Abraham, but also with Abraham's descendants. So we see Jesus in this story, don't we? Hebrews 11, 17 through 19 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac shall your seed be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. The only begotten son is Jesus. He came to earth, he labored among us, And then we know that he carried his cross up, Calvary. There he made the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. The song 
go to dark Gethsemane, the, the songwriter says, Calvary's mournful mountain climb, there adoring at his feet. Mark that miracle of time. God's own sacrifice complete. It is finished. Hear the cry. Learn of Jesus, so to die. Like Isaac, Jesus allowed himself to be bound. He could have called angels. He could have escaped, and yet he chose not to. And yet the message of the story is clear. God will provide. And he provides himself because nothing else will satisfy. Yielding our idols. So, 1 John 5, verse 21 says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. And Chuck Swindoll told this story that resonated with me. Um, He was a pastor in a church out in California. And he said, shortly before her death, Corey Ten Boom attended our church in Southern California. Following the worship service, I met briefly with her, anxious to express my wife's and my love and respect for a faithful example. She inquired about my family, how many children, their ages, that sort of thing. She detected my great love for each one and very tenderly admonished me to be careful not to hold on to them too tightly. Cupping her wrinkled hands in front of me, she passed on a statement of advice I'll never forget. I can still recall that strong accent. Pastor Sindal, you must learn to hold and then having tightened her hands together while saying all that, she slowly opened them and smiled so kindly as she said, Remember, hold everything loosely, everything. In the back of my mind, I can still hear her words. Since our Lord is sovereign, not only are our times in his hands, so are all our possessions and all the people we love. Releasing our rights to him includes the deliberate releasing of our grip on everything and everyone. Easy? Never. William Cooper wrote, The dearest idol I've known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. And it's interesting to hear an idol described as dear. I think when I think of idols, I think of terrible things, things that are metal and human, and yet things that are truly idle are dear to us. They are hard to give up. And I think there are two aspects of idolatry that we see. First is, it is giving love and respect due to God to something else. So whenever we give something that is, that is God's by right to something else, that's a problem. And then the second thing is, an idol is about control. So what's the problem with God? It's not a problem, but God is not under our control. But idols are. If we do the right incantations, if we do the right things with them, they will do what it is that we ask them to do. 
And in the end, idolatry is about us leveraging things that we have to make ourselves more happy. Could children be idols? Well, yeah, they can. So God has told us that anything we value more than we value him is a false god. And people today often use family and children as reasons not to pursue things of God. They, they have more important things to do. They have their child's ball game or, or this activity or that activity, and they choose not to follow God wholeheartedly because of family. And to me, that, that speaks of idolatry. If I value my relationship with my children more than I value my relationship with God, it's a problem. So what are some signs that we've made our children an idol? And and I trust that this is not something that you deal with. Um, Maybe the first thing is it's hard for us to displease our children. Um, And I thought of the, the story of Samson going to his parents and saying to his parents, you know, I want this Philistine wife. And they sort of half-heartedly put up a, a fuss about that. They said, well, have you, have you not looked at the Jewish girls? There, there's some really pretty Jewish girls. And he said, no, I want this one over here. And so they just went and did it. Um, so it's a problem if we're not able to, to express um, concern to our children, and we have to do exactly what they want us to do. Um, the second thing is maybe the opposite. Um, we overcorrect our children. So if our children are our puppets and we have to control every aspect of their lives, that's a problem too, isn't it? It's a different kind of idolatry, but it's, it's still idolatry. Do we allow our children space to fail? Do we feel like it makes us look bad if our children aren't exactly what they should be? So Phillips translates Colossians 3 verse 21, parents do not overcorrect your children or they will grow up feeling inferior and frustrated. I said translated, I think that's a paraphrase or Phillips' own take on it, but I love that because I do that all the time. And I need to give my children space to be people. And yet I want them to be perfect and look good so that I look good. And maybe that's a sign of where my heart is and where it should be. Third thing is we are afraid to let them pursue the things that they think that God has called them to. So let's say that the question is not really whether God has revealed their future to us. He may have only revealed it to them. We still need to be able to support that. Um, And we're good at rationalizing the reasons why they should stay close at hand to be available to us. You know, it's kind of the Mennonite way, right? We, you know, um, we would like to have our children close by and have um, Sunday meals with them and, and do things together and, and then we'll see our grandchildren grow up and they're, you know, until we pass. Um, and I think of Hannah in First Samuel chapter 1 and she was willing to sacrifice her son, not on the altar, but to give her children, her son, into God's service. And as our children get older, we need to be willing to let them do what they hear God's voice calling them to do. Um, my grandmother struggled with this. Um, she, uh, when my mother wanted to go 
to Niger and, um, and minister there, teach school there, um, she came up with numerous reasons why she shouldn't go. Um, and my mom was in her 60s. You know, it's, um, she's, she's old enough, you would think, to, to know better. But um, I think it all came down to the fact that my grandmother was worried that she could get in harm's way. You know, it's dangerous in Africa. And, um, and she wanted my mom to be close by. And I can understand those feelings, but it's important that we let people serve God wholeheartedly and give them our blessing. King Hezekiah got rid of the altars in Judah, and we read in 2 Kings chapter 18 um, about something kind of interesting. 2 Kings 18, verses 4 through 6, He, that is Hezekiah, removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image, and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not kept his commandments, which the Lord did So what was this Nehushtan? Well, it just means, Nehushtan means bronze thing. Um, and we know this was something that Moses made, right? He, the children of Israel were in the wilderness and they were being bitten by these uh, venomous snakes. And God said, make this snake and put it up on a, on a place where everybody can see it. And when they look at it, they will be healed of these venomous bites. And somehow, hundreds of years later, the children of Israel had turned this thing into an idol. It had power, power of its own. I think two things are in conflict here. First of all, the bronze serpent started as something good. And the second thing was when it became an idol, it had to be destroyed. It was an antique. It had incredible history behind it, but Hezekiah was not willing to leave it around for fear that people would return to serving it. So there are other things besides children that could be idols, and I can't name them all, but maybe there's some different questions we can ask ourselves about the things in our life um, that could indicate that we're struggling with idolatry. Does something cause me to disobey God? Does something take time from my day that I should be using to serve God? What is the hardest thing in my life that I can imagine losing? What is the thing that I turn to when I feel like I need to be recharged? What is the thing that I talk most about? We know the rich young ruler came to Jesus and um, asked him what he needed to do to, to gain eternal life. And Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that, saying he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And if you'd asked this young man, do you have idols? He would have said, no, of course I don't have idols. That's those people in the Old Testament. I only serve God. I offer sacrifices at the temple twice a year. And yet at the same time, there were things that stood in his way of following Jesus. 
And I would finish this section by simply saying that when we give the things that we value the most to God, he will give them back to us and more besides. We don't need to worry about it because that's the message of this story. The Lord will provide. So when Abraham told Isaac the Lord will provide for himself the lamb for the sacrifice, it could have meant two different things. It could mean that God would simply provide something as a substitute. But it also could mean that God himself would be the sacrifice. And the interesting thing is that both of these things are true. There was a ram there that took Isaac's place. But we know that offering sacrifices look forward to Jesus' ultimate sacrifice. So the focus of this story is twofold. It's a focus on Abraham's faithfulness, but it is also a focus on God's provision in desperate need. So I'm not sure what we would have named this mountain if we had been naming it. You know, if I was traveling to this mountain and I'd had this, you know, you know, let's say you, um, you would say, you know, well, this is the Mount of Anguish or the Mountain of Obedience or Mountain of Faithfulness. And yet Abraham looks to God in this moment and says, I am going to call this mountain Jehovah Jireh, the Mount of God's Provision. And the question is, do we trust God's provision? It's probably easier to think of these God's provision as being something that's for other people. Um, I was thinking about George Mueller. He was somebody who immigrated to England to try to minister to Jewish people. Um, and, um, and as he was walking through the streets of Bristol, he noticed all the children who were there who did not have parents or anyone to care for them. And he had only about 50 cents. He had two shillings in his pocket. Um, and he said, you know, I feel like God is calling me to start an orphanage. And he said, you know, I am not going to ask anybody for money ever. I'm not going to publish that I need money. I'm not going to do anything. I am just going to pray and God will provide. And you've probably all heard this story, but one day there was no food for the orphans. They were sitting around the table, and they asked the blessing for the food to arrive, that was going to arrive. And about that time that they finished praying, there was a knock on the door, and it was a local baker who wanted to donate a bunch of bread to the orphanage. And just about that time that he was leaving, a milkman came in whose cart had broken down in front of the orphanage and wanted to donate the milk so that it wouldn't go to waste. So it was that over the years, the children were always provided for, and he took in roughly $140 million worth of donations in today's money, was able to care for not only these children, but also to give money to other causes like Hudson Taylor's inland, um, China Inland Mission. So I think we're careful. You know, I wouldn't be George Mailer. I don't think I could be that, like, faith-oriented, where I could just launch out and say, you know, I mean, you know, we, we're going to build a church house sanctuary down the road here, and, and we want to make sure we know where the money is going to come from. Um, but God is faithful, and he will provide. And it's more than financial. Abraham had plenty of money, but he would have given it all up to see Isaac live, and God provided in that situation, too. 
And I think it's important to note that God uses people to supply these needs. So he uses very tangible things. He didn't perform a resurrection here. He simply provided a lamb to take Isaac's place. So has there ever been a time when you sacrificed something to God that was just terribly hard for you to give up? William Carey was a brilliant man. He was working as a cobbler in England. But while he was doing this, he taught himself languages of Hebrew, Italian, French, and Dutch. And he began to preach in his local church. Um, But he felt called to go as a foreign mission missionary and um, getting people at that time enthused about um, foreign missions was difficult. Uh, Many people had the idea that if God wanted to save the foreigners, they would, he would send somebody and it didn't have to be them. Um, And eventually Kerry um, founded an organization. This is maybe speaks to um, the time because we would probably have something shorter. Um, He, he, called his organization the Particular Baptist Society for the Propagation of the Gospel Amongst the Heathen, which is a mouthful. Um, I, I don't even think it, like, you know, it's not an acronym where it, like, comes out to something like gospel or something. It's just P-B-S-P-G-A-H, anyway. Um, so at this point, he was ready to leave for India. He felt God was calling him to India. The only problem was his wife wasn't ready to go. She wasn't willing to come along. And so finally, he and his oldest son set out for India. Um, and eventually his wife came around and, and joined him. Um, and I don't know if this was the right decision for him, but I do think that sometimes God calls us to sacrifice the things that we hold dearest. Luke 14, verse 26 says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yea, in his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. So I told the children, sacrifices cost something. So often we try to keep our sacrifices on a superficial level. It's the easiest thing often to give is money. And that's not to say money is useless, but sometimes God wants us to give something that is dearer to us than that. There is nothing safer than giving up our all to God. It feels dangerous, and yet he is more trustworthy than any bank. And when we give up our sacrifice to him, he is Jehovah Jireh. He is the God who provides in every situation, in every time of need.